The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the historian Katja Hoyer, whose new book is Beyond the Wall, East Germany, 1949 to 1990. Katja, welcome. To start with, can I ask what the sort of impulse behind this was because it feels to some extent like a corrective to a historical record is that is that the right way of seeing it um that depends what you what you how you define a a corrective i wouldn't want it understood as a complete kind of revisionist history of of the sort of cliches that are out there of the gdr i've more sort of set out to treat the gdr as a proper chapter of german history rather than just this caricature that it's it's become so i've sort of what i'm trying to do is complicate the story perhaps complement it and and add to it and make it a more comprehensive history kind of taking it seriously as a as a social political and economic experiment of of 41 years as opposed to relegating it to a footnote of cold war um history and there's also i would say perhaps a personal angle there in the sense that I was born in the GDR and but wasn't old enough I was still a child so I wasn't old enough to sort of fully comprehend its kind of politics and its economics and the way that you know life unfolded in it so in many ways this is also me now returning to something that I never experienced as a historian and as an adult uh, to try and explore you know what this what this country was like. Well can you say a bit about that personal side I mean there's there's one one little description in the book just around 1989 I think the four-year-old Katya is peering out of window but you know can you talk about the your impression and understanding of the upheavals that that happened when you were four as you were growing up and and came to adulthood your relationship with your parents well well at the time because I was so young like the, the memories that I have are largely of upheaval excitement something big happening um and that memory that I describe in the book of of kind of watching the demonstrations unfold in Berlin is is the one that that stuck with me, even though I was very small. I think what left more of an impression on me was the time afterwards when, you know, your your parents, your teachers, your neighbours, the people around you kept referring to a world that just didn't exist anymore. You know, people's life experiences were largely based at this point in the early mid 90s on things that happened in a country that had just vanished. And, you know, this kind of intrigued me to try and find out a little bit more about it at the time as, as well as now. So in many ways, it's, it's the fact that it's gone, I think, and the the stories and the reinterpretations that happened afterwards and with people being, you know, everything from from angry about what happened to uh, to sort of, you know, disconcerted about what would happen next. Um, and you had the whole range of emotions and, and reinterpretations of the GDR straight after it had collapsed. I and mean, that was always quite intriguing, kind of growing up in the shadows or in the remnants of something that didn't exist anymore. And in the, the environment in which you were growing up, I mean, what was your parents' attitude to the GDR and the disappearance of the GDR? I mean, I imagine that that would have shaped your view of it as you were growing up. It did to some extent, but my parents are fairly were fairly uh, sort of apolitical, I would say, um, in the sense that they they sort of led their lives in the GDR as, as normal citizens. So my my mother was a was a teacher, and my dad was a an officer in the air force. Um, so therefore, you could say, you know, that they were sort of part of the regime, as it were, but they weren't kind of committed to 
to the ideology in, in any you know meaningful sense. So when the GDR collapsed, they quickly adapted, formed new lives in in the in the new Germany that they found. Uh, my mum actually stayed a teacher, which I always found interesting, you know, given that you were trained in one system and then uh, sort of, you know, adapted to another. But they they kind of just took the situation as it was. So there wasn't a kind of a huge deal of resentment or, or kind of uh, a feeling that something big had been lost. I think people just, as my parents did, most people, I think, just took it in their stride. Yeah. Well, let's maybe go back to the beginning, because as you described the sort of initial formation of the GDR, I mean, it wasn't at all apparent, was it, to start with, that there would be this complete divide, that Germany would be split. And indeed, there is a sense in your book, which I found very interesting, that Stalin didn't really want a client state in the way that that he ended up with one. Well, I think to start with, none of the Allies sort of seriously thought, or kind of, it was certainly not not uh, deliberately brought about this this kind of creation of two German states. You know, the idea to start with was that that the four victorious powers would sort of run Germany together, and each was allocated a zone for administrative purposes, just because they had to take over the the running of Germany in the in the absence of a German government. So the, this kind of distinction that we then see into West and East Germany is is entirely arbitrary. It's basically where, where troop movements ended more or less in, in Germany. So from that angle alone, the creation of, of an East and a West German state, you know, is a political one, is a coincidental one in terms of where the line exactly was drawn. And I think that was a problem for the GDR all the way through, basically. It, it lacks historical legitimacy. There isn't a kind of a, an, a country that's evolved out of historical reasons, but one that was kind of that just happened um, and so then trying to instill some sort of a, a national sense of you know belonging of pride of loyalty to a state that is in many ways an artificial construct I think is something that the GDR always struggled with. The process of it becoming a separate state I'm really interested that there are these revisions both to West German policy and to the GDR's kind of constitution that initially the idea of a united Germany was part of the you know, both of them thought that way, and then it shifts, doesn't it? When does it shift, and and why? Well, they had the problem both east and west that Germans, the, the Germans themselves, were incredibly hostile towards the idea of of having a divided country. So the population was never um, happy with that. So either side had to try and and blame the other side. So in that you know, in that sense, you get this kind of bizarre situation where the constitutions east and west the first incarnation anyway, looked very, very similar um, because either side had to claim that, you know, it had to be mergeable with the other. They weren't the ones that were bringing about the split. So they were the ones kind of facilitating a, a reunification in many ways. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Stalin in particular wasn't averse to the idea because ultimately Germany is Germany and it wasn't part of this thing that Russia considers its its natural sphere of influence. We see this with Putin again today, you know, where sort of Eastern Europe and the Slavic world is is kind of the where they see their their uh, kind of power um realm, if you will, and, and Germany isn't part of that. Um what Stalin needed Germany for is resources, is exploitation of um, you know, labor to start with, rebuilding the Soviet Union effectively from his zone. So if he could have done that with a unified Germany, that hasn't got any any kind of hostile troops in it that would be demilitarized. That would be better for him because most of the um, sort of industrial resources and you know iron, coal, those kinds of things, is all in West Germany. 
Um, so he's got a problem in that when he's trying to extract stuff from East Germany, it's a very agricultural region with not with basically the stuff that he needs in it. Um, so unification is still somewhat on the cards. I would argue never realistically because you just can't have Germany with the size and scale and, and position that it's got as a neutral demilitarized country. Every side would have tried to claim it back for itself, I think for various means so that's on the cards in theory and practice i don't think it was going to happen and how much of a kind of grinding of gears was there in the minds of the populace when it's aligned with russia fairly fast it's got russian troops in the country but these russian troops you know right at the end of the war were raping and pillaging and looting their way across germany i mean it's an enormously traumatic experience with the red army and suddenly the ordinary people are expected to pivot to a you know fierce loyalty to russia yeah absolutely and that was that was quite a, a task for the for the east german elites who were trying to frame this as a liberation so that this idea that you know nazism was something that had been put upon the east german population or the german population as a whole and it was never something that they kind of believed in was was a way of reframing things so that a legitimate German state could be set up with these people as a part of it. So when you reframe this, what was effectively, you know, a violent reconquering of land with all of the, you know, traumatic experiences that came with the rape, murder, looting as liberation, you know, this was kind of how they were trying to do this. The ordinary population weren't really allowed to talk about these things. So this was never part of the kind of you know, public discussion. It didn't end up in newspapers or in any or in the radio or in any other kind of public format, um, because it would have disturbed this this kind of reframing as as liberation of the Russian conquest. And so, effectively, women and children who were largely affected by this um, stayed silent, and and this became a silent trauma at the heart of the of the GDR's society. Yeah. Now, can you talk a little about the extent to which the formation of the East German Polity in the in those early early years and decades was shaped by its leaders and the personalities of its leaders. I mean, Walter Ulbricht first of all. How much did Ulbricht put his stamp on it, and how much was it essentially, you know, sort of Stalin or or an organic Politburo related development? Well, it's it's an it's a really bizarre situation. So on the same day that Hitler shot himself in 1945. Stalin deploys this kind of East German or German task force into Germany to rebuild. So these are 10 hand-selected German communists who'd spent the war in Russia and had sort of fought against Nazism, helping helping Stalin in his war effort. And these men who are left and, and kind of survived Stalin's purges, which were severe. So out of the entire leadership of the of the Communist Party of Germany that went to Russia, only two of them are still alive at the end of the war due to Stalinist kind of purges and paranoia against Germans whilst the war was going on. So even if you were communist and you were in Russia at the time, it was more likely basically that you'd not survive, um, despite the fact that you'd fled Nazism to try and help Stalin. Um, so what was left basically was the hardcore, the residue really of, of you know, German communism, the, the real ideologues. And, and those are Walter Ulbricht and Wilhelm Pieck, who become basically the first leaders of the GDR. So that experience in Soviet Russia, and I think also to some extent beforehand in Germany, where where communists had been uh, kind of at the sharp end of state, state repression from, from well before the First World War, puts its stamp on East Germany because of the the paranoia that comes with that, the constantly looking over your shoulder at enemies, not trusting anyone, not even your close comrades, never mind the 
you know, the wider population. I think that really did put its its kind of psychological stamp on this new state. And you see that, you know, in the in the kind of early foundation of the Stasi, the the secret police um, in East Germany that's formed in 1950, just just a few months after the the state itself was set up. And the the leader of the Stasi also, who's who survives through the whole history of East Germany, this character Mielke, if I'm pronouncing him correctly. Mm-hmm. What was his sort of character and personality? I mean, was the Stasi essentially an extension of him? I think it was. I mean, Erik Mielke is an incredibly sinister and powerful figure. So the fact that he grew up in, in the Berlin district of Wedding, which is, is like a real kind of, you know, hotbed of communism all throughout the sort of early 1920s. And he grows up in this really kind of quite extreme political world and also a very kind of deprived community. Of, of, it's one of the poorest communities in Germany. And actually, you know, early on, it becomes apparent that he's very ambitious and also very intelligent. Um, he actually manages to get into one of the selective schools, which only 7, 7% of them were, were, were from working class backgrounds in the 1920s. Um, so that tells you a lot about kind of his own personal drive and his own ambition. And then during the war, he's got an interesting biography. He's, he's trained as a, as a sort of terrorist and, and undercover saboteur in Moscow and then gets gets deployed in the Spanish Civil War on the communist side and, and kind of hones his skills there. You know, again, one of those characters constantly out for, you know, looking around himself for enemies, for people that got, got it in for himself. And then uh, when he's when he's back in East Germany, it takes a while until he's trusted with the actual running of the Stasi itself um, because he spent the war in Western Europe rather than in Moscow directly. So people in the Soviet Union and also the German communists that get deployed back in Germany, they don't really know him all that well and, and don't really trust him to start with. But he works works basically very hard to start with to build up the Stasi in the image of the Soviet secret police and uses the same kinds of methods. So things like sleep deprivation, you know, constant questioning of the subject um, under very, very hard conditions you have things like water cells, which are horrible, tiny little cells, kind of as, as big as a telephone booth where you can't stand, lie or sit in them properly. You've got water, um, which is why they were called water cells. You've got standing water, kind of ankle deep, ice cold at the bottom of them, just to kind of grind down your mind, your willingness to to hold on to your version of the story until you told them what they wanted to hear. All of these things are methods honed in and learned in uh, Soviet Russia and therefore I would say that the Stasi is an extension of kind of Mirko's own training and his own personality. And does the Stasi represent a separate, if you like, power centre within the administration? I mean, is, it, is there a sense in which it's it's rivalrous to, say, you know, Ulbricht's power or later Honecker's? Yeah, and I think that's one of the ways in which you can see that the GDR's history is more complicated. It, is, it isn't kind of a case that the Stasi and, and the state are entirely synonymous. There are many, many politicians who are actually frightened of the Stasi themselves. So one of these examples is that when the Berlin Wall is built, people turn around to, to Mirka and say, well, look, you know, you've had your time. You needed to defend the early state because there were still spies going back and forth in Berlin. But now that's closed. You know, we, we're going to curtail your power and we cut your budget down. And Mirka just sort of sits there in the wings waiting for a bit, managing to to deal with the stagnating budget until... He's able to exploit the next wave of paranoia and says, haha, I told you there are enemies everywhere. Um, and people up his budget again and he builds this kind of massive empire. 
he also runs the the settlement where all of the politicians live, just north of Berlin. So they set up this this thing called uh, a Waldsiedlung, a forest settlement in in Wandlitz, just north of, north of Berlin, uh, like a walled kind of cut off settlement for the for the elites. And the Stasi run that. So if you're a politician and you live there and you go to say the hairdressers in that little village. The hairdresser itself would be employed by the Stasi and anything that you tell them gets fed back straight to Mirka. So, you know, your own life um, is completely controlled and monitored by him. And there's very little in the end that, you know, the politicians themselves can do about that. Mirka also collates a file on on Eric Honecker, the leader. Uh, well, I was going to say it's extraordinary that towards the end of the story... <laughs> Yeah, uh, like in a little red suitcase. Uh, so this is a perfect story as well, where he just collates like incriminating evidence against his boss, against the leader of the state, just in case he might need it one day. Yes, how do you read that? Is that an insurance policy or is that a, an attempt somewhere down the line that there might be a coup? What do you, what do you think he was... A, a bit of both, I think. I mean, he was really worried about the fact that Honecker kind of oscillated between uh, oppression and withdrawing the GDR into itself, but then also phases of opening. So the 1973 Youth Festival is one such example where there's 8 million people from around the world flocking to Berlin because Honecker wants to kind of put on a big show of, you know, we're open now, we're we're discussing things and and we're changing now that I'm in power. And Mirka hates that. He says from the beginning, any Western influence makes enemies within our own ranks. If you allow music or people or any kind of cultural influences from the West into our country, that's a bad thing. So he's worried about that and thinks eventually Honecker might need toppling um, and starts like collating these these uh, pieces of evidence against him. So, you know, there, there is some tension there between the Stasi and the rest of the, the kind of political apparatus as well. Yeah, he's a real charmer. Now, you mentioned the, the wall going up. I mean, this is a book that is scrupulous in trying to make the story of East Germany, not just the story of Berlin or the story of the Berlin Wall. But... You know, it takes nearly 15 years for the wall to go up. Why does it take so long, given that, you know, the slow puncture of the brain drain is evident long before that? And, you know, it seems to be pretty unsustainable. Why, why did it take so long to go up? And was it inevitable it would go up? Uh, well, they beefed up the inner German border fairly early on. So there's this land border between East and West, uh, or sometimes known as the green border, um, because it is quite difficult to to defend to start with, they actually resettle 11,000 people away from it so that they can build this kind of really broad strip of, of of kind of no man's land between East and West Germany. So that's closed up from 1952 onwards and, and very difficult to cross. So people that do want to cross between 1952 and 1961 can still go to East Berlin, literally walk over into West Berlin because the city is still open and then take a train from West Berlin to wherever they want to go in, in West Germany. Um, and that, as you say, leads to a huge amount of problems. So it's tempting to ask, why didn't they close that up earlier? But th- there's various problems with that. For, to start with, Berlin is still an occupied city. So neither East nor West Berlin at this point are officially part of the country itself. It's an occupied city that's still run by the four victorious powers of World War Two. So closing that up or doing anything to that situation always brings with it the risk that you know the, the cold war tension might escalate into a hot war i mean the city is occupied literally by soldiers so if you know there's any tension there any change of the situation and you, you end up with a direct confrontation between soviet soldiers and say american or british or french soldiers that leads to an altogether different conflict that is you know scared the gdr more than than the slow brain drain to the to the west 
so this only happens once um, Albrecht can actually get the consent from the Soviets, um, who were initially quite reluctant to do this. And once it's also clear that the West won't respond, um, and that also becomes clear. So neither Adenauer nor Kennedy, the, the American president at the time, um, react particularly strongly other than in words, but they don't do anything because all sides are somewhat relieved that this last kind of open frontier is now closed and can be can be managed in a, in a way as, as much as it is a tragedy on a personal level for many, many people and on a national level for Germany. The, the kind of superpowers were both relieved that, that this last kind of gap had been plugged. That sense of the collusion of Western powers in the separation and isolation of the GDR is quite striking in your book. I mean, the, I, I can't now remember the name of the declaration that Adenauer makes quite early on, that West Germany won't... De- the Hallstein Doctrine. The Hallstein yeah. Doctrine, that's it. That, that, I mean, that surely pushes the GDR into, into a necessary isolation, doesn't it? That says... West Germany won't do any business with a country that even recognises the GDR as a state. Yeah, um, and I mean, that's not an interpretation. That was an official uh, West German policy, the Hallstein Doctrine. It basically threatened any other state that if it picked up diplomatic or economic relations with the GDR, then West Germany wouldn't trade with it, which effectively ended up being being a trade embargo because you wouldn't snub you know, the, the economic power of, and diplomatic power of West Germany just so you can buy a few like Trabant cars or something from the East. So th- this did isolate the GDR for a long time. And the, the way that the breakthrough happened is, is quite uh, quite remarkable, really. So West Germany started supporting Israel quite extensively with, with weapons supplies and money. And, and that made a lot of the countries in the Middle East very angry. Um, and they were now keen to snub West Germany. So they invited Walter Ulbricht to uh, Egypt, um, where he was allowed to... It wasn't an official state visit, but it was like an official state visit. Kind of, he was received by um, by NASA with sort of great tam tam, and it was all very uh, kind of like a state visit. And uh, as a result of that, other countries in the Middle East felt uh, like empowered to acknowledge the GDR as a state, and that kind of chipped the first of the holes into the into the Hallstein Doctrine. Um, and then eventually, under the first kind of social democratic government in West Germany, so a more left leaning government. Um, under Willy Brandt, this was kind of loosened up and eventually from, from 1973 onwards, both Germanys are admitted into the UN, for example, and start kind of recognising each other as, as neighbour neighbouring states. Was the Hallstein Doctrine, was that, do you think, a geopolitical mistake on the part of, if you like, West Germany as representative of the Western powers? Well, uh, it was part of, of Konrad Adenauer, who was kind of the first... Well, he was the West the first West German Chancellor and he made a very, very clear made it a very clear policy that West Germany would be part of the Western world. So it was from the outset integrated into uh, NATO. He builds up an army again and makes it clear that they will work very closely together with with the Americans. So there was at no point an attempt to try and, and collude, as it were, with the other Germany and try and maybe form some sort of confederation or something. That was not on the cards. Adenauer said, this is a Western country, Eventually, we're going to make sure that the GDR is so unstable and will collapse and then become part of of this Western Germany as well. But there wasn't a sense that a compromise should be struck, you know, going kind of politically further into a neutral field, which kind of was what Stalin was arguing for, to try and, and bring those two together. So... From that angle, you know, Adenauer would have argued it isn't a mistake because effectively it bound West Germany incredibly tightly into this kind of defensive network of NATO and into the Western world. And therefore, 
kind of provided the, the furthermost, the, the easternmost outpost of, of the democratic world and, and upheld it in, in effect. So that's that was the logic behind it. Right. Now, the shift to from Ulbricht to Honecker, I mean, Honecker is kind of extraordinary character, isn't he? I mean, among other things, you know, we first meet him leading a kind of youth march, which is a comical disaster. <laughs> Um, yeah, he certainly, despite his kind of slightly mundane and, and kind of, you know, the, the kind of image that people have of him in mind is this kind of small man, slight man with, with horn-rimmed glasses who, who speaks very awkwardly and is very awkward in public. Um, so he's on the face of it quite a mundane person, but also a hugely ambitious one. He starts off as the leader of the, the Free German Youth, the mass movement that, that East Germany sets up. And as you say, the first time I sort of introduce him as a major character is when he's trying to kind of gather a whole uh, sort of little army of them all in their in their cornflower blue shirts and march them provocatively within Berlin from East Berlin into West Berlin. As I said, that, that border was still open at the time and finds out pretty quickly that, that West Berlin responds to that in lots of interesting ways. So one thing that people do is all the shop owners think, oh, brilliant, here's all of these like, East Berliners, East Germans who haven't seen a, a banana in like forever. So all the shop owners like come out and offer free food and goodies and things, and people actually take photographs in West Berlin of their chocolate bars and their American chewing gum, uh, which obviously is not what Honecker had in mind. And also the the police get turned out and, and other people come out and, and literally beat up these youngsters. You know, they're, they're like street battles. And Honecker very quickly tells these kind of young, you know, it's literally going over there with teenagers um, in part, you know, tells them very quickly, like, we need to go back. This is too dangerous. Um, and they run back and it ends up in complete disaster. He gets he gets dragged in front of the uh, Central um, Committee of the Politburo and, and gets... Um, you know, kind of addressing down, as it were, from them, and it's all very embarrassing. The only thing is that one of the the members of the Politburo makes a mistake, and it basically implicates Albrecht, the leader, in this, and kind of criticizes him at the same time. And that turns Albrecht. Then he becomes very defensive and says, "Actually, you know, um, Honecker didn't do all that badly. It could have gone wrong anyway." And, and ends up defending Honecker because of that. But otherwise, it could have very well been the end of him. Yeah, well, much good sticking up for him did for Ulbricht in the long run. But <laughs> Honecker also, I mean, in this period in the sort of 50s where, you know, the kids are excited by American rock and roll and they want, you know, jeans and they want trendy haircuts. And Honecker's the great conservative moralist in all this. But I was amazed to discover that actually he was very far from that in his personal life, was it? Yeah, you can say that. <laughs> you can say that again. Um, I mean, he was married three times and the first marriage was completely hushed up because basically this was very early in his life and it was actually a prison guard. So when he was in, in a Nazi prison during the Nazi era, he started an illicit affair with one of the women who was sort of, you know, staff in the prison to try and get out, basically. And he married her quickly afterwards. Uh, she died tragically of a, of a tumour um, shortly after. So this marriage was completely hushed up. Then he married again, um, Edith Baumann, and had a child with her. And he, they'd only just married when Stalin celebrated his 70th birthday and, and Honecker flies over there to, to be at this kind of, you know, grand sort of party that Stalin throws in, in Moscow. And it was at this party or at this kind of event that he started an affair with the youngest um, kind of member of the political elite, 
Margot, um, who eventually becomes his third wife. Uh, but, you know, this is literally months after he'd married his second wife. So, you know, he was, he was known at the time as a bit of a, a sort of womanizer as well and somebody who, who drank quite a bit and, and was sort of jovial and later on turns into this incredibly conservative uh, sort of moralist who who says that any Western influences, you know, are, are kind of depraved and, and kind of drag the, the youth down morally. Um, so in many ways, you see that quite a lot in Honecker's policies as well. He kind of flips back and forth between these two sides of him in his policies as well. Now, this question of the sort of day-to-day life of ordinary people, because, you know, those of us who've, who've you know, take most of what we know of East Germany from watching, you know, the lives of others. We have the impression it's a population that's essentially kept in a prison and with everyone watching everyone else and it's all grey and it's all horrible and everybody knows that they're oppressed. You describe something much more subtle and variegated than that, don't you? They, I mean, a lot of people there really did believe in the project, didn't they? I think people, some people did. I mean, it, it completely, this is what I'm trying to do with all of these little stories in the book is that it is, you know, there were 16 million people in the GDR. And just like now, when you go out and you ask people what they think of Rishi Sunak, you're going to get a whole range of opinions. You know, he's not representative as a person and as a system of what's happening in Britain any more than, you know, the system in the GDR was representative of the individual attitudes and life experiences of, of individual Germans. Um, so there were those who genuinely believed in the system. And I found that particularly in the in the very first years, sort of 49, 50, 51, 52, until it, it became kind of apparent that their efforts weren't going anywhere and the situation wasn't getting any better. But you found a lot of people who said, actually, you know, I wanted to roll my sleeve up. I wanted to build a better Germany. These young people in particular who had seen their entire world collapse, the only thing they ever knew was Nazism and then wanted to build something better after the catastrophe that it led to. Um, so you see that a lot. Uh, on the flip side, of course, you have people who sat in, in Stasi prisons who felt um, kind of locked into the state and and took immense risks to try and leave it, you know, including kind of risks to their own family, to their own children sometimes. Some people tried to smuggle, you know, toddlers literally ac- across the, the border, you know, at, at great risk to themselves and, and the lives of their children. So you have this whole range of experiences. And I would say the bulk of people was in between of those two um, who were... You know, as I was saying earlier about my own parents, kind of just leading their lives, getting on with things, leading comparatively normal lives in the state that uh, is often seen as a complete uh, sort of aberration now in hindsight, but actually allowed these niche um, kind of existences where people, in contrast to Nazism, I would say, were allowed to to withdraw from politics and kind of just lead their own lives in the way that they saw fit. And it's interesting, over the course of the time the state was in power, there there is a, a sort of trajectory you describe in which in many respects if you take you know the unfreedom and the political climate out of the system you know real efforts were made to keep the population happy by supplying paradoxically in a communist state superior consumer goods and superior freedoms especially for women than were found certainly elsewhere in the communist world and in some cases elsewhere in the west weren't they yeah, well, I think you can't really divorce those two. You know, they, what I've found myself doing a lot of the time is is kind of trying to take the contrast out of these things. They existed side by side. So you could have, say, childcare and as a woman that freed you up to, to go to work, to go to university. And this was, in contrast to what many people think, not just a cynical attempt to get more people into work or to nationalise childhood. This was genuinely part of kind of the socialist ideology. I mean, many of the, you know, our our International Women's Day today goes back to a socialist movement. It's very much part of the ideology. 
um, and and they try and, and make that happen. That exists, but at the same time, you could be somebody quite happy in your job, but at the same time, you're getting monitored by the Stasi and you find that oppressive. So these things aren't necessarily contrasts as such. You know, you don't have to always add a but to everything that gets said about the GDR. It's more of an end. They exist side by side. Um, and that's kind of where I was trying to go with this. In terms of consumer goods, I mean, people people have got very excited about the statistic that the GDR used as well to try and make a point, which is fridges. At one point, they overtook the West in fridges. On the whole, I want to just make this clear again, the consumer goods were pretty, that was the bit that they lagged behind massively in this book. This was also the thing that made people very angry. So when things like, I don't know, the Sony Walkman and stuff like that came up and, you know, everybody in the West got very excited about it. Everybody in the East got very excited about it and wanted the same things. And the GDR just didn't have the economic capacity to offer the same types of consumer goods, not least because it spent so much money on the welfare state. Um, So in many ways, you know, one thing kind of takes away from the other. What I found quite striking, and I think this is also a kind of new take on this, was that Albrecht, I think, was still arguing for a classic communist society. He was still saying, if we're creating a classless society, that means there's no absolute poverty, but there's also no luxury, and you end up with everyone kind of in the middle. And was arguing for a more modest society in many ways, you're kind of deliberately taking away from the idea that everybody must have the latest TV model. If everybody's got a TV that's better than some people having luxury models and other people not having one. That was kind of the argument. And then Honecker drifts further and further into a kind of a trap in a way for himself, where he's trying to supply these consumer goods and have the welfare state, which you can't take away from people anymore. Things like subsidized rents, really cheap, you know, um, uh, kind of food and and culture and, and everything else is subsidized. So you can have a pretty cheap life. And consumer goods, um, you know, also supplied. And that just doesn't work economically. And that's why, you know, the further he goes with that, the more people expect that he's going to catch up with the West and that was never going to happen. And so he just created an ideal, really, that that is just unattainable for himself. And that's in the end, I think, the, the sort of expectations that East German people had of the society had moved very far away from the sort of more modest model that, that Albrecht had um, had further. Yeah, coffee is really important. I discovered. <laughs> no, about coffee. Yeah, I find it odd that British people laugh about this. If if, you, if I took your tea away from you, you'd be just as outraged. I, I mean, I this, this is kind of the equivalent, I'd say. You know, when, when one day there was no coffee anymore, previously it was there, but, you know, sometimes not in the quantities that you wanted, but you could kind of look around the shops and you'd find some somewhere and then just, you know, stash it once you had some. But when the world market kind of of coffee, and this was a problem in the in the West as well, you see at that point lots of instant coffees appearing with, you know, kind of grain and stuff and barley and things mixed in as well, um, because there was just a shortage on the world market. Um, it becomes too expensive for the GDR to, to keep importing it from, you know, with kind of hard currency from, from non-socialist countries. And so it, it kind of looks around and decides that it needs a, like socialist partner that could grow the coffee and then like it could be imported in the into the GDR and they find one in Vietnam uh, which in the 70s was of course still you know completely on its knees from the from the Vietnam war and sort of needed building up and so the GDR said well we can we can help there but in exchange we want some of the coffee that you're going to to grow for us and so they send engineers and biologists and sorts of experts over there and set up huge coffee plantations with all the irrigation systems and the surrounding villages, new schools and everything, as a huge development project set up. 
The problem is that coffee plants take just over a decade or so to yield their first uh, you know, crop. Um, and effectively, the first uh, harvest came in in 1990, so just as the GDR collapsed. Then you know, East German consumers are now drinking Vietnamese coffee. It's now, I think, the second largest coffee producer in the world. But it's as capitalist consumers rather than <laughs> socialist friends. But it's a legacy, um, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. Um, now, where do you, if you like, start to date the cracks that led to the to the collapse eventually i mean is that essentially when russia just cuts off the oil um well some of them i think are fundamental problems i mean not least the wall itself and the kind of division between east and west the fact that there is another germany you know and this is people forget that this is very very different to poland or to i don't know hungary or to to other states in in the eastern bloc where there is another country there that speaks your language, has your culture and everything. That's always going to be an allure for people to try and get to or to look to as a comparison. So that's I think those problems and many others are fundamentally inbuilt into the GDR's uh, kind of DNA, if you will. I think the the kind of straw that breaks the camel's back in the 1980s is the fact that no progress, no change, no reformers is forthcoming. The GDR had kind of made a cross for its own back in many ways by having an excellent education system. So people were extremely literate, for example. Uh, There are many statistics that show that the people, East Germans, read a lot um, of of stuff and were therefore highly educated. Um, And, you know, you've now got a highly literate, highly politicized, highly educated population that is not afraid to speak out and will speak their minds. This is another cliche, I think, about the GDRs that people would just pass if they weren't. And they became more and more vocal throughout the 1980s. So the, you know, the kind of peaceful revolution, as it's been dubbed in 1989, doesn't come out of nowhere. People are unhappy and they say that to their local politicians. I spoke to one man, for example, who stood in the last um, kind of municipal election in 1989 for the Liberal Party. And he said, like, the amount of anger and vitriol that he faced, you know, when he was facing his own voters who couldn't choose, you know, voters just went in there and kind of folded the list of names and put it back in the ballot box. Yes, that's extraordinary detail about the elections. They had these elections, but you had two choices, didn't you? What what could you do in a... Yeah, I mean, in effect, you really only had one choice. Like you, you were, you were kind of. You, we went into the the voting office. There was a list of names um, of the candidates that that would sit in in parliament already printed on there, um, and all you were supposed to. There were no boxes or anything on this. All you were supposed to do is fold this and put it back in the ballot box, and that was your your voting. People dubbed this paper folding. <laughs> that was kind of the the way that the GDR people would would refer to this. In theory, you could take this piece of paper and there was supposed to be a a kind of private booth somewhere that you could take it to with a little curtain. Uh, Often it wasn't there. Often you had to do this in plain sight. Um, And then you could take the list and cross out every single name on it in a neat horizontal line. And that would then, in theory, again, count as a counter vote. Uh, If you only said, well, I don't like these five candidates on here, I'm just going to cross them out, it would still be counted as a yes vote to the whole list. If you crossed one out, not exactly right, again, you know, say you made a cross next to the name or something, again, that wouldn't be counted as a counter vote. So you ended up with these ridiculous, you know, results of like 99% and, and whatever. If you were seen disappearing into the voting booth to do whatever you were presumed to be doing in there, would that tend to have repercussions? Yeah, and there was public pressure as well not to do that. Um, so first of all, there was huge amounts of pressure to go voting. 
Um, quite often people, you know, will tell you that if, if they didn't turn up because it was pretty much pointless, somebody would knock on their door and say, you know, it's voting day today, aren't you supposed to be somewhere? So there was this kind of coercion and constant, like, making it obvious that people were aware of the fact that you didn't play ball. Uh, and then, of course, there's a huge amount of pressure, you know, just the situation alone. You go in there, there's a, you know, a, a sort of grim looking man sat there giving you the the list and you then take it away into the into the kind of privacy of the voting booth. That itself, you know, was being watched, was being monitored. It would enter in your into your Stasi file if you had one. And there could be repercussions in the sense that, you know, say if you wanted your children to go to university, you would try and avoid drawing negative attention to you. They wouldn't outright necessarily say to you, look, if you do this, your son isn't going to get a university place. But there was always this kind of, you know, a threat hung in the air that people knew what you were up to. And, um, you know, if you wanted opportunities, it's best to keep your head down. And most people, frankly, just, you know, didn't deem it worthwhile because it wouldn't lead to change to actually do these things. Um, it's, it's a very small minority that took the list away and actually crossed out the names. Much higher, though, in 1989, is worth pointing out, where actually even the, the kind of faked results that were given out in the end admitted that it was only, I think, 98% that year. Um, so, you know, even they admitted that something had was was about to shift and to change. So I would say the, the thing that brought the GDR down in the end is its, its kind of calcified system, the way that there was literally no change, no... Even ordinary citizens tell me these these stories about how they just got listless and, and angry and frustrated because things clearly needed to change and nothing was happening. And when unif- reunification took place, how well do you think that was managed and what were the repercussions of it? I mean, I'm struck, for instance, that you know it was very expressly, I think, if I'm interpreting you rightly, you know, it wasn't a sort of unification of equals. It was East Germany, the GDR was being absorbed into West Germany. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Reichsmarks were exchanged one to one, which presumably is a bit of a hit to the West German economy. I mean, how, how well was all that planned and managed? And what were the effects on, you know, how, how did the Aussies feel about that? Yeah, I mean, the, the unification process itself was consensual, you know, in the sense that East Germans voted directly for political parties in the first three elections um, in 1990. They voted for parties overwhelmingly that argued for a swift and one-sided unification process. So that's to say, you know, one one other solution, for example, which the, the SPD, the Social Democratic Party in West Germany argued for, was that now that Germany is unified, there could be a new constitution between the two states and you create a new country effectively out of the two. That was shot down. So the SPD only received something at 18, I think, percent um, in that election. So people voted to kind of be absorbed into the West at the time. I think one of the problems was expectation management. So the West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl saw this as the main moment for his own political career. He was actually in a political crisis at this time, he and his party, um, and it looked like he was going to get voted out of office the next time. So unification was kind of his moment to to consolidate his own political career. So he just overpromised massively and said there wouldn't be unemployment, there there would be enough uh, kind of state subsidies to make up for the economic collapse that was about to happen. I think the problem was that this process was hampered by a lot of, uh, first of all, the whole haste of it, the the quickness of it, um, because there wasn't enough management of kind of the transition of of an economy that had entirely been in state hands nearly to a kind of capitalist market economy. And on the other side, there was a lot of corruption as well. So you had people, you had a tiny little agency, the so-called Treuhand um, agency, 
trying to privatize property. This happened in the Soviet Union as well, um, where they were effectively giving away uh, assets and entire factories. And it was quite a demeaning experience for a lot of East Germans. So people that I spoke to, for instance, one guy who was uh, a mechanic in a, in a, uh, for sort of tractors and farm machinery. And he said that he his task was to basically put all of the vehicles together in the best state that he could so that they could be flogged off, you know, and he was doing this as a work creation measure. So he was earning like, I don't know, 300 Westmarks or something a month, like literally almost nothing and to dismantle effectively his own workplace and the things that the, the tractors and the machinery and things that he'd been working with for years so that they could effectively be given away for scrap metal value to a West German company, which then took them and scrapped them, you know? So it's, it's those kinds of experiences that I think uh, sort of made the expectations that people had initially invalid and, and people kind of felt cheated to some extent, I think shortly after. And, and this kind of sense of betrayal and, and disaffection lingered especially with the mass unemployment that followed i mean there were phases even into the early 2000s where there was a fifth of all germans unemployed uh, of all east germans and you know that's those kinds of problems it's pretty dismal where i grew up as well just outside of berlin it was just an atmosphere of kind of if you want to do something with your life you can't stay here um it's, it's all being abandoned people are leaving everything is leaving um and it became a pretty it became a joke almost but you know at the same time it, it was pretty a pretty dismal atmosphere. Did, did they there emerge as they did in in Russia's you know rapid kind of decommunisation a, a class of sort of oligarchs and rubber barons who made off with all these assets, or was that better managed by the West German authorities? I think the situation was a little bit different in that you know you had a, a West German economy already set up, so these these barons didn't come out of nowhere; they already existed. So if you if you like a, a you know if you run a largest company in in West Germany already, all you had to do at this point is say you know I want this company or I want this particular asset or this piece of land, um, and effectively you know these people weren't created by the situation; they already existed and just benefited from it. Whilst in Soviet Russia, you know, there was suddenly kind of a, an entire country up for sale and the people from within the country that was co- collapsing uh, were making use of the situation. Yeah. Now, as you hint, it seems part of the drive of this book, one of the moving things is to say, look, because the GDR vanishes from history, there's this assumption there is just one Germany. But if I read you right, you're saying that actually to this day, there are two Germanys. Well, I think to this day, the legacy of the other Germany persists. Um, so I wouldn't say, you know, having grown up in East Germany myself, I wouldn't say there's a, I'm a fundamentally different person from somebody who grew up in, say, Cologne or Hamburg or, or Munich. Um, there are obviously, you know, cultural, linguistic, uh, all sorts of links. It is one country, it is one nation. But at the same time, the legacy does still last of that state. And I think to relegate all of that to a failed experiment relegates the lives of the people that lived there to a failed life. So Angela Merkel, who I start my book with, you know, as a kind of anecdote, um, who literally spent the first 35 years, so that's just over half of her life in East Germany, and then got told afterwards, you know, just, just keep that quiet effectively, because if you mention it too much, people will start looking into this life and then find lots of negative things because really this life isn't worth talking about. And I think that's the problem to sort of say to people, your life starts in 1990, when especially people who are older than that, you know, don't want their entire lives um, relegated to a footnote or to something that one doesn't talk about, like a sort of skeleton in the national cupboard is kind of an unfortunate 
part of your past. Um, Merkel actually bristled particularly at a publication that was put forward by her own, by, by the by the sort of um, foundation that, that backs her own political party, the CDU, which argued that her East German life was was ballast and she, she dealt incredibly well with it by by kind of jettisoning it, you know, by, by getting rid of it. Uh, and she was like, look, this is 35 years of my life. This isn't ballast. This was my life. You know, that I think happened to, to East Germans and it's part of the psychological legacy of it. And and even people like me who were children at the time or people that grew up kind of straight after or were born straight after the GDR collapsed, there are lots of legacies from that. So, for instance, our parents are much, much younger than, than Western parents are. Like my mum was, I think, 22 or so when, when I was born, you know, at university, which <laughs> seems unthinkable today. When, when sort of, you know, I basically spent the first life or so on, on Dresden campus, um, first, first year of my life there, because, you know, it was just the thing that, that people were able to do because of the childcare facilities and things. But you grow up with a different kind of parenting style with, with your parents younger, both of them weren't work. So therefore you become, like you grow up differently. You get told how to cook your own food when you're like seven years old, you know, which, which again seems, seems odd today looking back on that. Um, but it's, it's those kinds of little details. If you add them all up, you, you come up with a very kind of different way of, of kind of living. Uh, and that has a legacy to this day, I think, that is underestimated. Katja Hoyer, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.